Good afternoon, everybody. We are very pleased to welcome Rodolfo Savelli, who is professor of the history of the medieval and early modern uh, civil law at the University of Genoa, or has been until very recently, is now retired, and dedicated his full attention to research, particularly research on the transmission and composition of uh, the Corpus Iuris Civilis in the 16th century. Rodolfo. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Christina Dondi and uh, her colleagues uh, for the kind uh, invitation. As my English uh, is a bit, uh, or more than a bit, poor, uh, I allowed to, to read my paper. Sorry. Uh, it is uh, decidedly curious that a um, somewhat analytical description of the uses and authority of Roman law in Europe in the middle of the 17th century should be linked to the name of a civilian, Arthur Duck. And uh, considering his very close relationship uh, with uh, Oxford in the Amplissima Biblioteca Bodleiana, I thought it would be appropriate to remember him at the beginning of my talk. I'm not going to use Duck to glorify the eternal and worldwide adoption of Roman law, but rather to recall, as he wrote, that Roman law was used in academies et in curies albeit in different ways. Uh, maybe the Latin is a modo dispari. Mm -hmm. That is to say, the authority and the uses of this law differed from country to country, even though it was implemented from Sicily to Scotland and from Portugal to Poland. In the 16th and 17th century, positions that tended to limit or deny the authority of Roman law emerged or were strengthened. Here I am thinking of people who regarded Roman law as a foreign law, and so not in force. Nevertheless, it is certain that the Corpus Iuris Civilis was taught and studied in the universities, including Oxford and Cambridge. Method differed from country to country and from school to school, but the fundamental text was the same, the Justinian compilation. This had an immediate impact on the subject of this seminar. Printing the Corpus Iuris Civilis meant having potential access to European markets. The market for this work had no political or conventional boundaries. By and large, the corpus circulated intact from Lutheran Germany to Papal <coughs> Rome and from Madrid to Geneva. But both technically and financially, however, printing the corpus was no mean feed. At the end of the 15th century and at the beginning of the 16th, the production of the five uh, classic vol volumes involved the composition of some 750 to 850 sheets. At the end of the 16th century, the number of the sheets uh, was uh, 1,300. And so, very, very large uh, dimension. From the 12th century onward, or following the rediscovery of this text, the corpus was read in the classroom and used in the courtroom. Jurists could not do without it. From the second half of the 13th century, university progressively adopted the practice of accompanying the Justinian text with a dense apparatus of glosses, which was compiled by D'Accursio and extended in the following centuries. Although the corpus 
is a unitary wall, it should be borne in mind that his medieval arrangement redistributed the single parts in different volumes, according to the scheme he reproduced. The digestum was divided in three volumina, digestum vetus, inforziatum, novum. The last three books of the Codex were placed in what was and is called the Volumen Parvum, together with the Novelle, the Instituciones, and the Libri Feudorum. And in the 16th century, some other texts, sometimes. It should also be remembered that the Instituciones had a partially separate history. Indeed, the manuscripts of the corpus and then the prints generally contain the institutiones. At the same time, however, owing to their role as an introductory manual to the study of law, innumerable separate editions of the institutiones appeared in the most different formats. This is evident from the 15th century folklore. The, the, number of the number of the edition of the Instituciones is more than double of the other parts. The editions conform to the layout used in the manuscript. As can be seen from two examples, a manuscript from the late 13th century beginning of the 14th, and the first Perugia edition of the Digestum Vetus, 1476, the page structure is substantially identical. The text is in the center, surrounded by the Magna Glossa or Glossa Accursiana. Uh, in the editions that immediately followed, two Venetian editions, we can see some differences and signs of another kind of problem. The 1477 edition still has the pertinent glossa at the title Item Lapilliet Gemme eh, in the same page, while the following edition need uh, as to reduce the number of pages to, in order to keep cost down, caused the long glossa to be shifted to another page. And this is not, uh, was not elegant. Moreover, an error appeared. Instead of gemme, we find gemine. And it is very curious that also in the manuscript we saw at, uh, at the beginning, in the glossa there is Gemini. The problem, can errors and or variants appear in a text that has legislative authority? Here, one of the central problems arises, particularly in the history of 16th century printing. As uh, has been ascertained, alongside the Littera Vulgaris or Littera Bononiensis or Vulgata of the Digest, the existence of a very ancient manuscript had long been known. This was the supposed archetype was not the archetype, but it was supposed. As long as the text of the corpus was considered to be substantially untouchable, sacred as the Bible, and my, my eyes sometimes, the problems were limited. But when the tools of philology and of history 
began to be utilized in the study of the Justinian compilation, endless problems obviously arose. Uh, before going into the matter of the 16th century production of the corpus and of its multiform varieties, a further preliminary consideration is required. The commercial success of the printed version of the corpus was underpinned by two factors. The first is the fact that jurists, lawyers, judges, functionaries, etc., couldn't ply the trade without having at least one copy of the corpus. Consultation of the inventories of ancient jurist libraries clearly demonstrate that they all had at least one copy of the Textus Civiles, and in many cases they had several copies. Also, inventories when uh, there was no the printing only of manuscripts with the printer. The second factor was the growth of universities and the growth of the student, student population from the middle of the 15th century onwards. This is a European phenomenon. Uh, let me make a, another preliminary observation. What is the basis of our knowledge of the editorial history of the, the Corpus Iuris? Let's remember that uh, most of the investigation on the editions were conducted from the beginning of the 18th century to the first 30 years of the 19th. Indeed, the most complete bibliography available today is still the one published by Spankenberg exactly two centuries ago, 1817. Since then, the catalogues and bibliographies available for the period of the Incunabula have multiplied enormously, while for the 16th century we only have fragments, albeit extensive, of information. But interest in this type of study, which was still alive in the 1820s, was superseded by research that focused substantially on the more ancient manuscripts. Indeed, we could say that the philology of classic text annihilated the history of printed books. And we can also observe a corresponding lack of interest among book historians. So much so that Douglas Osler, friend of mine, jokingly wrote of an horror of juridical books. The starting point of my research in this field was my chance encounter with an apparently anomalous edition of the Gestum Novum, printed in Geneva in 1588 by Jacques Bergeon. Uh, why do I say anomalous? Because, uh, according to the description in Gilmont database, there is only one known copy, one known specimen, of only one of the five standard volumes of this edition. Before regarding the incunabula there are cases of single copies of single parts of the Justinian compilation, an edition of this kind at the end of the 16th century seems to be somewhat improbable. It is even more improbable that an expert editor like Bergeon should publish only the third of five volumes. Uh, my curiosity was uh, further aroused when, on consulting the digitalized copy, I noticed that quite a few sheets had a totally different page layout from the rest of the volume. These pages were squared by means of horizontal and vertical 
lines. And yet, the text flowed without error from one type of page to the other. In the text and also in the apparatus of glossary. At this point, three questions arose. First, was this volume really solitary? Where did the squared sheets come from? How could they have been perfectly inserted between sheets of another layout? I'll answer the first question straight away. The volume was the only one with this title page. But at the Bibliothèque de Genève, it was, and still is, part of the set of the classical Quinque Volumina. In the 1589 edition of the Compagnie de Libraire. At that time, Geneva was a workshop which printed not a small number of books for the, that would circulate under the flag of a wide variety of Lyon editors. Valjean, along with others, had been given the task of printing this new edition prepared by a French jurist, Denis Godefroy, who had emigrated to Geneva. And some sheets with the squares are also to be found in the other volumes now at the Bibliothèque de Genève. So the origin was the same. I know I now answer <coughs> the second question. And in doing so, I think I can shed some light on the third. The squared sheets belong to the edition of the corpus printed in Geneva by Etienne Gamonet in 1612. What I would describe as a veritable patchwork about the previous specimen was evidently put together in some workshop in Geneva after 1612 by using a flawed 1589 copy and integrating this with sheets from Gamonet editions from another edition of 1604 and in two cases with manuscript page uh, completely identical to the print, but uh, manuscript. And now we come to the third question. How was it possible to mix sheets taken from different editions without creating any incongruence? At first, the matter seemed rather curious to my amateurish inexperience. So, to solve the problem, I created a scheme of the editions before and after 1589 and identified a few models, which I'll talk about later. In reality, the technique of copying a page layout, or as wrote Koch and Ornato, recomposition mimétique, dates back to the same origins of the printing of the corpus, and not only of the corpus, obviously. In 1612, Gamonet showed remarkable virtuosity in composing thousands of pages with a forest of lines and different types, while managing to maintain the same flow of the text from one page to the next, as in the previous editions. But, however, at the end, of 15th century, in 1546-47, the typographer Carcano from Pavia had proved no less of a virtuoso. Indeed, he had mimetically copied the Inforziatum printed in Rome in 1475. 
And uh, among the many reprints, uh, the Nachtdrucke seated in the Gebe, this one seemed to be particularly significant. The Roman edition was composed with Gothic type for the text and Roman type for the glossary. While in the Pavia edition, Gothic type was used throughout. In this case, too, the pages are perfectly uh, following a model of printed page enormously simplified casting off. Moreover, it became increasingly advantageous as the pages became more and more complex, and both because of the additions of that were inserted and because of the variety and size of the type used. Not to mention the cases of printing in red and black. Because I, I am and I was admired by the ability of inserting so many, not uh, title summaries, but very little letters and uh, other signs in, inside the text in the apparatus and creating a second type of apparatus in the margins, like uh, is in the, the note seeking PF is Pandectis Florentinis. By way of example, let's look at three cases from the second half of the 16th century. Uh, taken from three editions, Paris, Venice, and uh, Lyon Genève, of the Codex. Every effort has been made to avoid deviating from the reference specimen even to the extent of reproducing the same error of paginations. In the successive edition, they uh, changed kind and not numbered the two pages. At the same time, they respect the previous edition, but at the same time, the sets of the margin notes have been heavily reworked. So, the text, the Mania Glossa, remain more or less identical, and a third apparatus of notes is allocated on the margins. Before illustrating the provisional results yielded by that research, I'd like to show you a few charts of the geographical and temporal location of the center's printing of the corpus. These data are fairly complete. We could say they are rough approximations. Nevertheless, they give us a pretty good idea of the evolution that occurred on the European Sea. With regard to the 15th century, I have considered the single volumes that can be hypothesized being part of a planned or completed edition of the Quinque Volumina. And I have temporarily excluded the editions of the Instituciones, which had no relationship with the other parts. Overall, what emerges with regard to this period is the predominant role of Venice, followed by Lyon. Other Italian cities, Perugia, Roma, Pavia, Padua, and Milan, are active. However, these tend to disappear fairly early. Something similar occurred in the areas that we can generically define as Jericho. Koberger survived until the beginning of the 16th century, but then German towns disappeared completely from the scene of the production of the folio, folio and quarto editions with the gloss. 
conspicuously absent is Paris, which only emerged if we consider all the editions in all formats, including, for example, the quarta edition of the Institutiones alone. But uh, the, the, there is no significant change, apart from this uh, very little emergence of Paris. For what concerns the period that immediately followed, 51 to 1515, I don't feel I can present even approximate data. This is because, on the one hand, on the one hand no database like the ITC is available, and on the other, some editions are extremely rare, and the descriptions in most of the opus are incomplete. What first strikes us, however, is that Venice, like the German area, curiously disappeared. Indeed, Battista Torti, who had dominated the scene at the end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century, interrupted his publication of the corpus after 1515, while he continued to print other books and, uh, for 20 years. In the next charts, the overall number of the complete editions of the Quinque Volumina in folio quarto formats is indicated instead of their percentages. In the period 15, 15 to 1544, only two centers remained, Lyon and Paris. This scenario is much more heterogeneous, however, if we consider all the editions of the corpus with the glossa, still in quarter folio format, in the overall period ending in 1627, when the last edition of this kind was published in Lyon. The overall data reveal a glaring fact. Just over half of the editions were published in Lyon. Paris also played a significant role, especially since its folio edition served as a model Nevertheless, Paris met a similar fate to that of Venice 60 years earlier. Indeed, after 1576, <coughs> the French capital faded out on the supply side. For the war of the religious, but not only, I think, for war of religious. By contrast, Venice made a comeback in the wake of the French production. The first uh, Quarto editions from 1569 onwards slavishly or mimetically followed the Lyon editions. Though later one from the end of the century onwards were enriched with new appendices and notes. The, two, the only two folio editions published in Italy, one in Turin and one in Venice, the editions printed in Antwerp, Plantain and Nuzius, and the Geneva editions, well, all followed the Lyon or Parisian model. The rest of Europe was absent from this segment of the market. Up to now, I have spoken about corpus with the Accursian Glossa, the traditional classical form of printing the Corpus U.S. Civilis. But we need to make some further observations. The text itself changed, new lessons appeared, and parts that have previously been omitted were inserted. Above all, the text that in the original text were written in Greek. <coughs> Editors could not avoid taking into account what was happening alongside the traditional edition, a new trend which could not be ignored. 
It should be pointed out that in the 16th century, a major editorial innovation was brought in. This came about for several reasons, the main one being what may be conventionally labeled juridical humanism. Editions only of the text of the corpus were published, that is to say, without the accursion glossa, and sometimes with new and more concise apparatuses. Let us now look at the edition without the Glossa Accursiana. This first appeared in a random manner with the printing of the Institutiones and the Codex by two different French editors. Subsequently, from 1518 onwards, publication of the corpus in, this, in its entirety became systematic and almost characteristic of the production productive scene after the middle of the set. In this chart, we can also see a case that is not homogeneous with the other, that of Florence, 1553. That year saw the publication by Lelio Torelli of the text alone of the digest in accordance with the Littera Florentina. Mm -hmm. The famous supposed archetype. I thought it appropriate to mention it now. It was attended for many, for a lot of years, Gessner uh, in the 15 uh, 48 wrote that the text was printed, yet printed or imprinted, so a sign of the attention to this event. But apart the, the Florentine case, Italian centers were clearly absent from this sector of the market, no, no other edition in Venice or other towns. For what concerns the cities of German area, following the very important editions by Alwander, in Nuremberg, which was to have such a great influence right up to the late 18th century, the edition prepared by Spankenberg and Gebauer use and quotes the Alwander edition, and the German now they remained substantially absent in the 16th. Basel reprinted and updated Alwander edition. In 1587, in Frankfurt, have a reprint of a good edition, but it was something without successive history. We have to wait for the middle of the 17th century. In effect, this pie is a kind of melting pot containing objects that had only one thing in common, <coughs> the fact that they did not report the Accursian gloss. Indeed, there are editions only of the text of the Vulgata, the most ancient, and prints with philological pretensions. Editions also appeared in which, in addition to the philological updates, we find apparatuses of annotation that are completely different for the Accursian gloss. Mm -hmm. Here I am thinking of the notes by Roussard, Le Caron, Le Comte, Giulio Pace, and finally Godefroy. The various editions published by Godefroy, mere text, text with his own apparatus, text with the money glossa, can be regarded as emblematic of the processes underway. The revised edition with the Mania Glossa, 1589-1627, represents the last glimmers of a centuries-long tradition that ended in 1627. Not least, I suppose, as a result of the other two editions published by Godefroy. The mere text 
and the Littera Gotofrediana. This became the new editorial standard in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, after this excursion among dates, names and cities, I would like to make a few considerations regarding both a very interesting conjunction and the subject from which I started out, the typographical model. The conjuncture in question is that of the central years of the 16th century. In 1543, a truly epoch-making text was published, Antonio Agustin Emendationum et Opinionum. In it, the results of a long analysis and collation of the Florentine manuscript of the Digest were presented. This work earned the Spanish jurist instant celebrity, and the French editors immediately drew from it in order to present edition that in some way indicates the variance of the alleged archetype, like this PF we found in the example of the black and red print. In Paris and Lyon, many editions that exploited Augustine work were published. Between 1545 and 1550, in Lyon, Delaporte published at least two folio editions with the Manegloss. Alongside this, and in close competition, a prestigious illustrated edition was published by the Frère Seneton. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, with regard to publication of the juridical classics, Paris was in a fair In 1548 to 1550, Charlotte Guiard published two editions, one in octavo, following the example of the Aloander text, was edited by Jacques de Ventimille. Jacques de Ventimille claimed to have collected his own emendaciones during his travels in Italy, cited as friends Torelli and Matal, and quoted Augustine's book. In addition, he frequently referred to the ancient manuscript that belonged to Aymar Ranconet, a very important magistrate and collector of ancient manuscript. In parallel, a quarto edition by Charlotte Guillard, with the Magna Glossa, was published by Louis Lemire, with the collaboration of Jean Dutillet, who was preparing editions of Ulpianus and of the Codex Theodosianus. Two years later, in Lyon, Rouillet, the famous Rouillet, published an edition in sexto decimo format, uh, which he called my Digestum Manuale. And uh, in the same year, in 1551, De La Porte, together with Antoine Vincent, launched a quarto edition and begin, began to produce a new folio edition, completed in 1553. Every year or every two years, a new edition was printed in Lyon. And sometimes it's very difficult to uh, realize if effective is a new edition, a complete new edition of five volumes, or if there are mixture of new volume and old volume. Both of these uh, editions, quarto and folio edition by Delaporte and Vincent, contain correction and text that suggest a direct relationship with Matal, who seems to have provided notes from his reading of the Florentine manuscript. In Paris, in 1553, a new octavo edition appeared, again by Lemire. However, some questions remain unanswered. Why 
it appears certain that Matal passed documents to the Laporte for the 15-153 edition as his friend and collaborator and teacher also, Agustin wrote some 20 years later. What we can say about the Parisian edition by Jacques de Ventimille? Was it based only on a careful reading of the Augustine book? Or should we also heed the words of Ventimille, which seem to indicate a direct relationship with the three eponymous heroes of the Florentine edition? Uh, for the moment, I'm not prepared to say any more about that. I indicate the problem. Earlier, I mentioned it, and more. I mentioned editorial families and typographical models. I will now point some which prove it to be dominant. The first model arose in Paris in 1515-1516 and was used several times in both Paris and Lyon until 1544. Then came an interval of about eight years, characterized <coughs> by changes that were due not only to the philological innovations, but also to various typographical choices. First of all, the definitive abandonment of the Gothic type in favor of Roman on the part of the printers in Lyon. The juridical book was uh, very conservative. In, uh, the, in this year, at the, in the middle of the century, very big uh, edition, the famous uh, 16 volumes, folio volumes of Tractatus, uh, were still printed in Gothic uh, characters. Subsequently, two other models emerged with regard to the folio edition cum glossis. The second was initiated by the Seneton, as I quoted before, in 1549, and was characterized above all, apart from the question of text and quotation from the Florentine manuscript from another manuscript, the Archeon, who is quoted in the title page, was a 14 manuscript in Avignon, was characterized above all by the insertion of dozens and dozens of small emblematic illustrations at the beginning of each internal section of the Quinque Volumina. When the Senetons joined the Grand Compagnie de Libraire, they brought this illustration into the editions of the Compagnie. From 1558 to 1584, I reported three examples that show how the, the emblems is the the wood of the endless is always the same, but the composition lit, a lit, changes a little, but not so significant. In 1576, the, this editorial tradition from Lyon was copied by Bevilacqua Airs in Turin. They charged a local engraver with redesigning all the illustrations presented in the Lyon editions. And in the same time, as the apparatuses of variants drawn from the Florentine digest carefully updated. So there is a, uh, clearly the, not only as is evident from the specular image 
which uh, was copied, not copied in a mirror how it was used, but directly from the original. And that uh, some jurists collaborated in a very interesting way by adding all these variants, and there is pages of pages of variants on the border of the page to the Florentine Digest. Uh, the third model originated in Paris in 1559. Oh, sorry. Not with two fingers. Only one. In 1559, with an edition published by Antoine Lecomte, a teacher of Bourges University. Uh, and this is at the origin of my research, the number of columns remain more or less constant, as shown schematically in the table. Uh, from 1559 until 1612, uh, we have a continuous identical number of columns while the content was partially modified by the updates made by Leconte himself overall in 1576 where there are the major uh, novelties and successfully by uh, and, uh, and later by Godfrey. In uh, 1612 as uh, you can see there is a last uh, edition of this model by Gamonet and uh, the contemporaneous edition by Cardon et Compagnie in Lyon. And this is the year of the, I think, uh, of the break in the collaboration between Lyonese editors and La Geneva printers. The, the 1612 Lyon uh, edition uh, is announced as an answer to the tradition of the Geneva publication because, as I indicated, also 16.4 is Lyon but Geneva print. Uh, the difference between the two models, Lyon and Paris were chiefly ones of typographical layout. The previous local model was followed and updated, and updates were added in the margin. The innovations in the Parisian model were a little more extensive with corrections of the text following the Florentine pundits and the editions of Greek sources, and with insertion of Cuja Paratitla to complement the Sumaria of the medieval commenta commentators. As you can see in the Linus edition, the variant of Florentine Digest Ergo is annotated on the board, and while in the Parisian text Ergo is inserted without any correction in the text. In the Lyonese uh, edition there is only the Accursian uh, annotation Summaria, while in Parisian model there is Accursian and Cuja Summaria or Paratitla. The variety of uh, <coughs> the supply outlined here met with the tastes of the European cultural elites, professional and cultural, and not only elites. This finds a confirmation in the libraries of the jurists. The examples are innumerable, but I quote just a few. On the death of Claude Dupuis <coughs> in Paris, 1595, 
The following were listed. A folio edition by De La Porte, The Precious Florentine Digest, Aloander Editions, STN edition of the Greek Novelle, and the very recent Geneva Corpus published by Godefroy, apart manuscripts of the Codex and of the Institutionis. Dupuy was a high-level collector, as also was Jacques-Auguste de Tou, 25-30 years up later, in his library there were seven different complete editions and numerous other volumes of single parts. But these are very important collectors. But the unknown, unknown Sardinian magistrate, Monserrat Rossellio, who died in 1613, possessed five editions of the Corpus, as well as numerous copies of the Institutiones. And the Florentine Digest, Florentine Digest, was also to be found in the library of a Catalan jurist, Francesc Serra, in these years. Then we found at Merton College, and in the middle of the 17th century in Naples, among the books of another magistrate, Matteo Casanate, together with the Quinque Volumina, with the Glossa, and the most recent edition by Godfroy. Obviously, the Florentine Digest could not have been absent from Alexander Cunningham's library. But this was an extraordinary case. Cunningham had collected 27 complete editions and 73 separate titles with a view to publishing a new edition of the Corpus, which, however, never saw the light. In many cases, professional interests are fused with the collector spirit. The higher the social and professional rank, the richer the library and the greater the variety of the editions of the Corpus. Thank you.